I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 62 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. When religious leaders attempt to trap Jesus in a Bible debate, Jesus' answer somehow manages to convict and provoke his audience, wider first century culture, and modern audiences revisiting the story some 2,000 years later. There's lots of ground to cover tonight, um, and I'll go ahead and tell you guys that I wanted very much to uh, season this thing with a little bit of levity. So if you're new, this is, you picked a doozy, but we're going to get uh, right to it. Um, we are in an ongoing and in-depth study of a book that we now call the Gospel of Matthew, um, but it was written as one among four biographies of Je- Jesus written in the first century which is a time and a place that we have no familiarity uh, with, if any at all. It's in a language that we need translated in the first place to even understand, so we think that studying this book is serious business. It takes a lot of work, and for us it takes a long time. Now, where we've left off in the story, Jesus has announced plans to his closest friends or his apprentices, what was often called his disciples. He's announced plans to build for himself a like-minded community of apprentices, what would later come to be called the church, the thing that we're still doing now. Thing is, this community will be made out of people. That's the plan. So it's going to be a mixed bag. There's incredible potential for good to change one another and really to change the world itself for the better, but we'll also screw it all up because we're people and we're going to hurt one another. So Jesus taught his close friends, the ones out of which he's building the beginnings of this new family, how to survive when they face the inevitable messiness of sharing life as a family. And Matthew, the author of this biography, is now stringing together a series of teachings from the flow of this idea about how to survive in community. This new community, the church, will be made up of all sorts of different people, all different types of histories and nationalities and ethnicities and backgrounds and bents. But these groups of new disciples will also be made up of households, meaning there will be husbands and wives that are coming to faith and participating in the church. There will be parents who are learning to follow Jesus alongside other disciples of Jesus. It will also, of course, include men and women who are not married or are not parents, either deliberately so or by circumstance. So Matthew, having used Jesus' teachings to address congregations and new communities, now wants to bring the teaching of Jesus to bear on the home or the household, on being married or being single, on having kids, kids, and then later on having money. And there's a ton here, so let's get right to work. You guys all right? Awesome, thank you. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the teachings that preceded this, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Georgian. Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, pause for a moment. So for a while now, Matthew has actually been just battering the reader with rejection after rejection and like uh, animosity toward Jesus. There's been the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus' close friend and cousin. There's been persecution from the religious leaders and there's been warnings of Jesus' impending death. He's straight up said that I'm going to go and die. But it's now as if he inserts this little thing to remind us, but listen, don't forget, this is still Jesus. Where he goes, people line up, they're fascinated and healing always follows. Then right back to the conflict. Verse 3, some Pharisees or religious leaders came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife 
for any and every reason. Now that word test is the Greek word parazo, and it can be translated as tempt or trick. Trick questions are frustrating things. I was trying to think of an example to illustrate how much I hate trick, trick questions. Many years ago, I was in a studio working with some musicians and friends, and this gentleman that we had hired to engineer this project wanted to go home at the end of the day, and we were trying to get our money's worth, so we wanted to stay there all night. And he began to cite what he called ear fatigue, meaning like, I'm so tired, I can't even really clearly hear what's going on, I'm not, I don't trust my judgment. We wanted to keep working, so we were like, okay, well, let's do a few more things. We asked him to make a change, and he was like, fine, you know, he turned around and started to tweak some things. Um, he seemed to tweak some things anyway, and then he played it back, and he asked if this new version was better than the one before it, and we all agreed unanimously that it was much better, and then the engineer revealed that he hadn't actually tweaked anything, thereby proving his ear fatigue theory, uh, and we had it too, apparently, because we couldn't hear anything. So he was right, but we were ticked. We were like the nerve of this guy <laughs> proving us wrong. Um, some of us even couldn't deal with it to the degree that we theorized that he had tweaked the levels, but then he lied about it just to humiliate us. That was easier for us to deal with. Point is, leading someone into a trap with a trick question is a great way to humiliate them. And the trap in tonight's text is actually a simple one because the question seems dumb. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason he wants? The, the obvious answer is no, that's dumb. Assuming Jesus will say something to that effect, the religious leaders could then entrench Jesus in a divisive, ongoing first century debate around marriage and divorce and the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. One noteworthy teacher called Rabbi Shammai taught that in order to follow Torah, a man could only divorce his wife if there was adultery involved. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, another noteworthy teacher, believed that a wife burning her husband's dinner was grounds enough for divorce. And then another uh, prominent teacher, Rabbi Akiba, thought that if a husband found a more beautiful wife or a more beautiful woman than his wife, it was permissible to divorce his current wife and remarried his preferred option. Now, Jesus has actually already weighed in on this debate all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. He taught unapologetically, listen, I'm with Rabbi Shammai, meaning men can't just divorce their wives for any reason other than adultery. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrated a very high view of what the Bible describes as the covenant of marriage. But he also ascribed value to women who were being victimized by the selfishness of their husbands. But here's the question again from the Pharisees. Ah, but is it written? And they're bringing this up for a reason. They're going to try to exploit a loophole from Deuteronomy 24 that says if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and it goes on. So the Pharisees are thinking, oh, there's an inferred loophole here. And if Jesus answers correctly, no, a man can't divorce a woman for any reason he wants, the Pharisees can exploit the loophole, trap Jesus in a teaching against divorce, and hopefully discredit him in front of his audience and thin out his following a little bit. But Jesus, the master teacher, cannot be trapped. Let's read his response and then try to unpack it piece by piece. Look down at Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator, and then he quotes the, from Genesis, made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore... 
What God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus' answer to this conversation is to take the Pharisees all the way back to the very beginning of the story, and it's kind of worded like an insult. He's like, haven't you read, as in, shouldn't you guys of all people know this stuff? It's been this way since the beginning, and I mean the very beginning. And his answer seems simple. In a certain sense, it is, but there's so much here. Jesus is giving a stance on sexuality. He is articulating a sexual ethic. Um, One modern argument that I've heard kind of lobbed at the historical sexual ethic of Jesus is that Jesus does not offer a position on sexuality, but he absolutely does. Jesus is saying, listen, long before evil corrupted the world, before the fall, at the beginning of everything, God's design and ordination for marriage and sexuality was that one man and one woman would enter into a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant together. This is before anything went bad. And this is noteworthy because Jesus' position on this topic was anything but universal to his culture. He's not just saying what everyone thought at the time. So another assumption that I sometimes hear is that the sexual ethic of Jesus is simply ignorant and outdated. Jesus didn't have the robust paradigm for different expressions of sexuality that we have now, and so that's why his view sounds so narrow. But this is also hilariously untrue. The world of the ancient Mediterranean was a world that was completely familiar with divorce and remarriage and promiscuousness and prostitution, polygamy, polyamory, gay sexuality, gay marriage, even pederasty, which is a grown man and a young boy in a sexual relationship. If anything, the sexual landscape of the ancient world was more progressive than ours, not less. And Jesus knew about all of those things, and when asked to comment on them, spoke to all of them by saying, I stand in solidarity with the scriptures. From the very beginning, this is the way God intended things to be. And Jesus includes in this a concept of gender, which is really fascinating, male and female. Before any brokenness entered the world, God God designed both male and female sexuality with a purpose for both. Pastor John Tyson argues this, Far from being a cultural construct, God depicts the existence of a man and a woman as essential to his creational plan. The two are neither identical nor interchangeable. Dividing the human race into two genders, male and female, one or the other, not both, and not one then the other, is not the invention of Victorian prudes or patriarchal oafs. It's God's idea. And this is one reason that Jesus continues to fascinate me in particular, that Jesus presents a concept from Genesis for male and female as good for a sexual ethic, as a lifelong monogamous covenant between one man, one woman. Well, all that obviously reads as controversial in our culture, but it also reads as controversial in Jesus' cultural climate on the other side of the socio-political spectrum. So here's what I mean. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Dale Bruner writes this, the words male and female are a direct quote from Genesis, and they contain an indirect criticism of the Pharisees, whose very question implies that males alone are God's responsible creatures. When Jesus says male and female, The emphatic last two words, and female, should probably be underlined and may well have been stressed by Jesus. Male and female is Jesus' way of dignifying women, the oppressed party in the dispute, and his way of refuting the Pharisees' major premise, namely that men are women's superiors rather than their fellow creatures in the equal image of God. And don't think for a second that this dual critique is in any sense coincidental. This is master craftsmanship on Jesus' part. So think about it. 
The Pharisees design a trap for Jesus. The plan seems foolproof. Ask a simple question, predictable answer. We have already heard his teaching on this, and then manipulate the results. But Jesus doesn't give the predictable answer. Instead, he offers an unpredictable answer, and in doing so, cements a position on sexuality that inadvertently answers the question without springing the trap, and it does so with a built-in critique of the Pharisee's sexism, a built-in critique of the pro progressive sexuality of the wider pagan culture, and a built-in critique of the progressive sexuality of the modern world. So it answers more than it asks. It's controversial to multiple audiences across centuries and continues to speak to multiple ongoing questions that are as pressing now as they were then. That, ladies and gentlemen, is some seriously fine teaching. And look again at how many ideas are packed in there. In verse 4, you get this. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and then verse 5, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So in Jesus' mind, the marriage covenant takes precedence over even the filial relationships between children and parents. There is a spiritual prioritizing of family units, and when a man and a woman voluntarily enter into a marriage covenant, this new family uniquely prioritizes itself even over other important family units. And this comes easy for some, more difficult for others, but notice in the Old Testament and then confirmed by Jesus, it's a command, not a suggestion. And the Bible teaches clearly that, that children are to honor, respect, care for, love their parents. And Jesus takes all that very seriously. But when a man or a woman marries, their spouse takes a unique priority in their lives. And that language, be united to his wife, kind of misses the wild beauty of it. More literally, it's like be glued to his wife. The idea is that they cling to one another, they keep one another close, they hold fast to one another always. It's where we get language from marriage vows about forsaking all others. And the text that Jesus quotes says, the two will become one flesh. So at this point, things get cosmic. In sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, there takes place a, a metaphysical communion in the mind of Jesus, a spiritual interconnectedness so deep that it is akin to the enmeshing of two unique persons as one new being. And this is exactly why the New Testament will go on to argue that the only vessel powerful enough to contain that cosmic union is the one God designed, the lifelong marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Thus, Jesus says in verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. So now you get a qualifier in the, in the equation, what God has joined together. And that word joined is actually literally yoked together. It's an image of interconnected shared life and work and partnership and collaboration in the marriage union. That doesn't mean that God has for you a soulmate and God is the one who ordains individual marriages to happen at all. It means that when a man and a woman enter a lifelong marriage covenant, in keeping with God's design, it should not be broken. So, of course, the conversation continues. Verse 7, why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So that Jesus uh, didn't trigger the trap exactly like they planned, they're just going to try to force him into it uh, blatantly. 
It's likely that at this point now, years into Jesus traveling and teaching, the Pharisees have heard Jesus already teach. It's really hardcore on marriage and divorce, a teaching that Matthew has already recorded back in chapter 5. So they likely knew that Jesus would side with Rabbi Shammai, and even though he's done so expertly, they now rebut with Deuteronomy, wanting to trap Jesus in kind of a Bible contest which is something fundamentalists still love to do. And the aim is to reduce Jesus to anti-Bible and thus discredit him completely. Bible fundamentalists still do this with any teaching or teacher that scares them. Now, to be clear, there are times when it's entirely appropriate to be defensive for the Bible. In our context, most of us experience the kind of post-Bible, the, you know, it's whatever you want it to be, third wave, Rob Bell, woke fundamentalist kind of thing, more than the old school Bible thumpers. But here, Jesus is confronting the latter, the old school crowd, which is funny because as is often the case with legalistic Bible fundamentalists, the passage that they cite doesn't exactly do what they want it to do. Deuteronomy 24 enabled a wife who had been divorced to remarry. That's the point of the passage. Because in the ancient world, it was always the man's prerogative to divorce his wife without any kind of legal action. And as we've seen, they could do it over just about anything because they found someone better, because someone burned their food, whatever. And the outcome was often that the woman would be thrown out of her home. So Moses made an accommodation in the Torah of divorce certificates, and it was a response to Israel's sin. It was a provision for the women in question. The certificate of divorce was something like a permission slip to remarry, and in doing so, they could find a new place to live. And Moses was saying, listen, at least give her a certificate so that she stands a chance at remarriage, otherwise she could resort to a life of prostitution or poverty and die in disgrace. And this is how Jesus understood the law not the truest revelation of God's heart, but accommodating guide rails to get Israel back on track in her sin, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is filled with this refrain, you have heard it said, but I tell you, yes, the law says, for example, don't kill, but God's heart is that you wouldn't even be angry with one another or nurse grudges at all. So Jesus goes on, look down at verse eight. He replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Now notice the Pharisees asked Jesus, quote, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? This is the first century equivalent of the modern fundamentalist expressions like the Bible clearly teaches or the word says is another one, but Jesus corrects them. No, Moses permitted you to divorce, not commanded. Jesus is arguing that to understand Moses as happily blessing or even commanding divorce was an egregious misunderstanding of God's heart. The great seriousness with which God regards the marriage covenant is all over the scriptures. Look at this one from Malachi 2. You ask why, why are your sacrifices and prayers not being honored? Is it because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth? You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. <laughs> 
says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. God takes unfaithfulness very seriously. It becomes a running metaphor in the scriptures as well as a literal uh, intended purpose as well. Moses permitted you to divorce, Jesus says, because of your hard-heartedness. That term hard-heartedness can be translated as harshness or stubbornness or insensitivity. Um, It can also be translated as cruelty. And Moses' permission was a protection for broken people in a broken world. Yes, God's heart is that no marriage covenant would ever be broken, but God also understands that there are dangerous and abusive scenarios from which innocent parties must be released, but that is not the way God designed things to be. N.T. Wright says it really well with a helpful and kind of funny analogy. He says, Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive a car, this is how to have an accident. Rather, when you drive a car, take care not to have an accident, but if tragically an accident occurs, this is how you deal with it. Some scholars describe this duality as something like God's perfect will versus God's permitted will. But Jesus is hardcore, so lest anyone misunderstand him as kind of wishy-washy or having a soft take on the, the topic, hey, get divorced if you feel like it, he reiterates his position from the Sermon on the Mount, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus over and against other rabbis who gave lackadaisical permission to divorce, says that sexual immorality is the only valid reason to dissolve the covenant. Now, the Greek word there is porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography, which one scholar defines as every kind of sexual activity outside of God's design. Most scholars agree on that definition. Jesus does not use, notice, the less ambiguous word for adultery. His term is a bit broader than that. Now, remember, the whole of Jesus' teachings and the writings in the New Testament agree that God's heart is for repentance and reconciliation and redemption. Even some marriages that get wrecked by porneia or immorality can and have climbed the difficult uphill battle of repentance and restoration. But Jesus knows that 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 kind of work requires participation from all involved parties, and that's something that you can't force to happen. I see it all the time. Unfaithfulness ignites like a bomb within a marriage. One party is prepared to do the truly difficult work of seeking reconciliation, but the other is not. And Jesus does not want to trap people, women in particular, in those circumstances. Now, note, Jesus' paradigm, though accommodating in a certain sense, is still pretty hardcore. But if the covenant can be destroyed by sexual immorality or pernea, are there also other things which might merit divorce? The authors of the New Testament seem to believe so. Later on, one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul will write a letter to a church in a city called Corinth in which he will join with Jesus in condemning divorce, but then he goes on to add further scenarios in which divorce is actually advisable for disciples of Jesus. It seems that there are a number of additional complexities that might merit divorce. And because Jesus is not making a detailed argument here, he's actually in context navigating a trap. Uh, And because Paul develops the list of permissible grounds for divorce later in the New Testament, there are at least three basic views on divorce and remarriage at a theological or popular theological level. And there are these. The first is that the Bible gives permission to divorce in the event of adultery or abandonment, but remarriage is forbidden. That's position number one. 
Position number two is that the Bible gives permission to divorce only in the event of adultery or abandonment and remarriage is permissible. And then finally, position three is that the Bible gives permission to divorce for a number of very serious reasons, and in each case, remarriage is permissible. Even so, disciples of Jesus understand marriage as a covenant, not a contract, and thus work tirelessly to repent and reconcile in order that the covenant would carry on. I believe, me personally, that the third view is the correct view. Pastor and theologian John Stott famously refused to even enter into or entertain conversations about divorce until he had first spoken to the interested parties about two other subjects. The first is the concept of marriage itself, what is marriage, and then secondly, the idea of reconciliation. Yes, Jesus understands that marriage in a broken world is complicated. He's not a black and white fundamentalist. But he does teach that divorce is never God's heart. It was not this way from the beginning. Now, if you're seeing yourself or someone that you love in this, remember, for both the offending party and the offended party, for both the violated and the violator, Jesus gives hope. In his commentary on this passage, Bruner writes this, Now, further question, in addition to these three positions and everything else, what about remarriage for the violator, the one who screwed everything up? This question can be answered most effectively, I believe, by asking another question. Is there forgiveness of sins in the gospel? Let me ask this question in another way. Is there the possibility of a new beginning for repentant persons in the New Testament? The answer to both questions, I think, can only be this. Where there is sincere repentance and confession of sin, faith in Jesus Christ that accepts him as one's only hope before God, and genuine commitment to live a holy life, there is full forgiveness of sins. There is also power for living a new life. The future is as bright as the promises of God. Now, even so, with all that as context and nuance and everything, this is a tough teaching then and now and for me. And at this point, it really should come as little surprise. Jesus has been anything if not provocative, nothing if not provocative. So again, Bruner writes this, marriage is a form of discipleship. Occasionally, it is a cross. And sometimes it is a deep suffering by which, because it is so daily and personal, disciples can, in an exemplary way, show their loyalty to Jesus and to each other. Now, I know that sounds really rough, but I don't take this at all to mean, oh, marriage is such a bummer. That has not honestly been my experience whatsoever. But as we discussed in our series of community, the place of deepest love in your life is always the possibility of deepest hurt in your life. No one in the world can build me up or tear me down like my wife Abby can and me vice versa to her. And it's because there is such deep, profound love there and vulnerability there that the gates are wide open One simple encouragement from her can mean more to me than a dozen detailed praises from other people, and one careless insult between the two of us can be more than an entire diatribe from other people. Now, all that sounds pretty intense, so look at verse 10. This is how Jesus' friends react. The disciples said to him, Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry, which is almost comical, and it's a touch sad, Because Jesus' disciples, who are all dudes here, are essentially throwing up their hands and saying, well, if we can't send our wives away for any reason we want, then why even get married? And Jesus replies, look at verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, 
but only those to whom it has been given. All right, now things get weird. Here comes the deep water. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs. So where's he going with this? There are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, a eunuch, if you did not know, is a man who has been castrated. Now, Jesus is, we think, referring to three real-life scenarios and making analogous connections to spiritual modes of singleness. Now, bear with me for a second. When Jesus says that some are born eunuchs, he doesn't mean, obviously, that someone is born castrated. He could be referring to those who are incapable of having children biologically, or some scholars argue that he could be referring to what was once called in the ancient world hermaphrodites and then later intersex people. These are people who are born with multiple sex organs or aspects of both male and female chromosomes or genitals. One definition I read this week was that intersex people, quote, do not fit typical definitions for male or female bodies. This is not a new phenomenon, but an ancient one as well. And Jesus was aware of it. Today, the existence of intersex people is sometimes used to argue against a gender binary, meaning that there's male and female, or to argue for gender fluidity, a kind of mixing of both things. But in this teaching, with mention of biological variants, Jesus says male and female, he created them. Now, this in no way implies that Jesus had no compassion or concern for what we now call intersex people. In fact, the rest of the New Testament is clear that he did. It ju he just argues in this passage with the scriptures for a gender binary, male and female. And in Jesus' context, a person born a eunuch would not get married. So here he uses them as a metaphor for the type of person who is born with a unique ability to embrace celibacy. Now, celibacy is a complex and multifaceted topic. We don't have the time to get into all of it, but for our purposes in tonight's text, we might use it interchangeably with another term like deliberate singleness. In essence, someone who chooses not to marry or have sex is a spiritual vocation. If you're wondering, man, who in the world would do that? Well, for starters, Jesus. Also, that guy Paul, who authored most of the New Testament. To Jesus, the ability to pursue this spiritual vocation of celibacy is a gift, not a curse. Some people, Jesus says, won't marry because of innate life circumstances, others because of outside circumstances, things done to them, and for some, it's neither of those things, but rather a purposeful decision that they've arrived to in their own uh, spiritual formation. Later in the New Testament, Paul will celebrate these people, celibate people, as uniquely gifted and uniquely capable of following Jesus in an undistracted and undivided way. Now, this, of course, runs radically contrary to the idea many of us have been taught that to be unmarried is to be less than or incomplete somehow, or that God's purpose for each and every one of your lives is that you, you'll find your perfect spouse, and that's like of utmost uh, importance in your life. Tell that to Jesus. Historically, the church has understood celibacy as a high calling, as a gift, not everyone can do it. I know several celibate disciples of Jesus for a variety of different reasons, and each of them understands their singleness as a unique calling on their lives. But the point is not that one is better than the other. 
that married people are more human or that celibate people are more spiritual. Any ranking of the two misses the point entirely. The point is that Jesus is assigning equal dignity to both singleness and marriage. He dignified marriage, now he dignifies singleness. And really, both marriage and singleness can, when stewarded well, become vehicles by which we learn that we are not our own, which is kind of foundational principle of following Jesus. So if you choose not to marry, or if you'd like to marry but you just haven't yet, you are no less human, no less spiritual, no less complete, no less valuable in the kingdom of God. On the contrary, you offer a unique gifting that we badly need in the family of the church. And if you are married, you're no less spiritual, you're no less disciplined per se. Marriage is hard work. Not everyone can do that either, which is the point of this text. Notice Jesus presents this very high standard for marriage and then his high value of celibacy. And between those two, he says this, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, scholars debate Is he talking about the word on marriage, or is he talking about the word on celibacy, what he's just said or what he's about to say? And it sort of works either way, doesn't it? He says it again at the text conclusion. The one who can can accept this should accept it. That is the graciousness of Jesus. It's a gift. It's not a command. If you can, you should. And then after this fiery and divisive teaching moment, Matthew adds an epilogue to the scene. We're almost done. Before we end, let's read three more verses. Look down at verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. I love this story personally, but as I was reading it this week, I was like, why is it here? This is a conversation that began with marriage and singleness, the question of faith, the faithful household, so to speak. So before Matthew moves on, he wants to include a crucial aspect of not all, but many marriages, which is the family unit and children. Bruner writes, this story in the Gospels is one of the church's most treasured possessions because here we learn exactly what Jesus thought of children. The language implies that these kids would have been anywhere from newborn to age 12, so they're kids. And in the ancient Near East, children were certainly not understood to be precious and wonderful the way that they are often assumed to be today. Today, kids often, not always, but often consume and eclipse the entire lives of their parents. They become fashion accessories and ornaments for the fabricated and disingenuous moments of Instagram. But in the first century, children were to be seen and not heard. If that, no one would post pictures of their kids' first days of school. They were of the lowest social status. They were not valuable, not noteworthy, not precious. But not to Jesus. To Jesus, children are valuable, noteworthy, precious. And that Matthew specifically records Jesus' defensiveness for children and the unique attention that he afforded each of them, that he placed his hands on them and blessed them. The language implies that Jesus took his time and that he showed special attention to each of them one at a time and was unhurried in the process. This must have seemed to onlookers a bizarre thing for a rabbi to be doing. Another rabbi contemporary of Jesus that I read this week had this quote, uh, and this is a direct quote, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, 
and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble, these things destroy a man. <laughs> Heck, Jesus did most of those things, and here he is chattering with children. And when his followers are asking him not to do it, and note, did these kids come to Jesus of their own volition, or were they brought before Jesus by adults? They were brought, right? They were brought by parents and adults. So the teaching for us is parents, do likewise. Bring your children to Jesus, whether you are a biological parent, a spiritual parent, a foster parent, an adoptive parent, an aunt, an uncle, a mentor. Bring the children in your life before Jesus in conversation, in prayer, in your actions and words and encouragement. Put your hands on them and bless them in the name of Jesus. This is the role of disciples that care for children in any capacity. Bring them to Jesus. Because, Jesus said, who is better fit for the kingdom of God than those of low status, those who are dependent and unable and helpless and passive and weak? Perfect example of who is the highest in the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom. Okay, Whew, we're almost done. Now, remember, at this point in the story, things are building to a fever pitch for Jesus. His disciples have begun to realize who he truly is. Not all the way, but in part anyway. He's begun to speak at length about this new community that he plans to build for his apprentices to share with one another. He's made plain his plans to arrive in Jerusalem. He's on his way there now, where he believes he will suffer and die and then come back to life, though no one seems to listen when he claims that that's going to happen as well. So Matthew, the author of tonight's story, is reminding us of the very high ask of Jesus, what we sometimes call the cross of discipleship, but also that the high ask is born from the love of Jesus. The same rabbi who speaks so harshly of divorce is the one who takes little children one by one. Mark even notes that he, quote, takes them up in his arms and blesses them. Now, it may seem like a strange duo of anecdotes, but Jesus is talking about family and social values, and Jesus loves to defy the status quo. So look at it this way. Jesus seems to say, you want to argue about the Torah and teachings on divorce? Okay, let's talk about that. But we're also going to talk about marriage in general and singleness and family while we're at it. And let's be absolutely controversial on each and every point. And even an even higher standard for the marriage covenant than anyone thought, more dignity for singleness than anyone thought, more concern for family and children than anyone thought. Again, this from N.T. Wright, he says of this passage, nobody, certainly not Jesus, ever said that following him and finding God's kingdom way in these matters would be easy. But nobody should imagine that it's just an optional extra. As Jesus comes closer to Jerusalem and to his own astonishing act of self-denial and self-sacrifice, we should take personal note that the call to follow him extends to the most personal and intimate details of our lives. Jesus is extending the high ask of discipleship into marriage and singleness and celibacy and parenting. That's all of us, if you're counting. So where does this leave us tonight? Jesus has already presented his standard for divorce earlier in the book. We've already read them. He's already talked about his value of women in a culture that did not value them. They are to be treated as equals to men, not subordinates in any way. He's already elevated the position of lowly children. These are things we've already discussed at length in this series. 
And they remain relevant and pressing some 2,000 years later, which is incredible. And perhaps one reason why Matthew, who was limited by his resources, chose to include these things more than once. But at this point, we're getting all of this in a new context. It's not just the radical announcement of a new kingdom and a new king and a new way of life. It's not just, wow, who is this man and where did he get these ideas and where did he get this authority? At this point in the story, both the characters in the story and the reader have been made to grapple with those questions, to come to certain conclusions about Jesus. So these ideas first introduced at the outset of Jesus' ministry and his manifesto of teaching, Sermon on the Mount, they're being reintroduced as principles for everyday life in community. Jesus' ideas about divorce and remarriage aren't just talking points in a radical speech. He expects his apprentices to realize these teachings in the realness of their lives. The sexual ethic of the Bible and of Jesus isn't some archaic and embarrassing rule system. It reflects God's goodness and his purpose and his design for human flourishing. And hilariously, a teaching intended to provoke a sexist, patriarchal culture now provokes the modern woke herd mentality of our culture, both of them expressions of blind, self-defeating fundamentalism. And if Jesus' words and actions are any indications, he isn't remotely worried about either thing. What Jesus is worried about is establishing for his apprentices and the growing community in which they will live a way of life that regardless of its counterintuition or of its offensiveness will give what Jesus came to bring and that is freedom and life to the fullest. And it all comes from the Messiah that no one expected, the one who plans to die for his enemies rather than conquer them. To me, it seems entirely appropriate that Jesus' way to freedom is different than ours. Yes, we want true freedom. It's the concern of every human being in some way, even though we describe it differently. But the whole of all human history should be proof enough that we don't know how to do it. Jesus did, and then you read the rest of the New Testament and you realize two things. Even when we try Jesus' way, we don't always get it right, and Jesus decides to love us anyway. This morning I was reading from 2 Timothy, and this line stood out to me. Paul writes to his friend and his apprentice, his mentee, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The heart of God revealed in Jesus, the upside-down kingdom of God, may seem at times a demanding way of life, but it is a kingdom ruled by a king who is faithful to us when we are not faithful to him. So we've blown it to be clear, and we will blow it, and he will yet be faithful. That's who he is. He cannot be other than he is. He cannot disown himself. And when brokenness finds us, when our brokenness finds other people, when covenants are destroyed, when we miss the heart of God, yes, we repent, we turn around, we come around one another as the family of God to work for healing and restoration and, and reconciliation, and then we walk on knowing that his faithfulness cannot be dissuaded. The upside-down kingdom is radical, extraordinary. It takes a lot. But even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So with that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak over us before we worship with songs and singing again. Thanks for listening to Van City. 
You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.